I'll ask you if you'll turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21. Our focal verses for today will begin around verse 20, or verse 18, down to verse 23. A sermon that I have entitled, The Wayward and the Righteous. Certainly a parallel between those two in Scripture. And that will be the title, if I had to put a title to it, The Wayward and the Righteous. The Wayward and the Righteous. The Gospel of Matthew. If you recall, the Lord Jesus himself passes by Matthew. And as he passes by him in verse 9 of chapter 9, he calls out to him in two simple words. And those words were, follow me. Later in the narrative, Jesus is found reclining and he is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's eating with the outskirts of those in the social circles, those who are hated, sinners, the unclean. And of course the Pharisees, being Pharisees, had a problem with Jesus rubbing elbows with, with sinners. And just a side note, Jesus has called us to rub elbows with sinners too. Okay. The Pharisees ask, well, why, do you, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Why does, he, why does he have a meal with those who are sinners or unclean? And, and then verse 12. Verse 12 is what I would consider to be this kind of mic drop of the whole discourse. In verse 12, chapter 9 of the Gospel according to Matthew Matthew records these words. When Jesus had heard it, he said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And in case we have forgotten, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. And so, I've been thinking about the song that we just sang. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. It is exactly what the Lord desires of us to say in every avenue of our life. He wants our heart. He wants our mind. He wants our body. He wants our soul. He wants our family, He wants our church to proclaim, Lord, I need you. In fact, I would challenge you, survey the scriptures. And with all its many things, and you will quickly discover that one of the major themes would be this cry from the scriptures on behalf of humanity that proclaims, Lord, I need you. So listen to these words. We just sang it. Lord, I come, I confess. How many, when we sang that song, confessed? How many, when we sang that song, when that came up, Lord, I, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. 
and acknowledging, without you I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Now, last week we spoke about this battlefield. The battlefield that the Lord has called every person that names the name of Jesus to be engaged in battle upon. To get on the battlefield and to serve the Lord in these trying times. We are reminded of the importance of stepping, stepping up and ministering to others in this world that is seemingly unraveling around us. And I had this thought. Maybe the reason that so many in the body of Christ have become so complacent is due to the fact that we have not come to this realization, Lord, I need you. We have become self-sufficient. The proverbial, I have pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Maybe we have not come to this fundamental, foundational element of the gospel. Lord, I need you. We need the Lord to guide our lives. We need the Lord to direct our paths. We need the Lord to help us raise our children with a clear understanding of the gospel. They need to see mom and dad mirror the gospel in their home. They need to see mom and dad proclaim not only with their mouths, but with their actions that Jesus actually means something in his home. It has baffled me in these past few years. Why is it that we have our children invested in so many things that have no eternal value in the grand scheme of things? We got them going here. We got them going there. We got them involved in all this and Not that the things are bad in and of themselves, but as we are invested in so many other things, we have neglected the one most single important thing in their life. We have neglected that one most important thing, which is the Lord Jesus should be the center of their very existence. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, we're baffled. We can't figure it out. Preacher, I just can't figure it out. Why my son or why my daughter isn't serving the Lord Jesus? Why aren't they serving Jesus today? I, I, I can't figure it out. Well, maybe it was that we didn't present Jesus in their life as someone that you would serve and lay down your life and service for. Why should they serve Jesus when mom and dad don't care nothing about serving Jesus? Vadi Bakum said this, I believe it's a punch to the gut for, for all of us. And by the way, every single one of us in here, moms and dads in some way, uh, have fallen under this conviction. At least you should. The altar should be full today of people lamenting our failure and our neglect to raise our children with the centrality of Jesus in their home. So here's a quote from Vadi Bakum, uh, well-known, circulated on on the internet, well known from, from him. 
in, about education, but so much more of, of education. He says this, We cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. And that is affecting every area of our life. They go to school six hours and spend maybe 20 minutes in the Bible. Hopefully an hour or so sitting under the preaching or teaching of the Word. But moms and dads, we need to tighten the belt. We need to tighten up and fight. Fight for our children to know Jesus more. To know Him more. Fight for your children so they can be a disciple of Jesus. So they can be a disciple of, of Christ. I had, growing up I had I had nobody to disciple me until I was almost 30 years old. Until I was 30 years old. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a home that, this, that Jesus was there. Fight for your children so they can be disciples of Jesus. Fight, fight for your family. Fight for your family because the enemy wants to tear your family apart. Do you know that? The enemy wants to tear your family apart. He wants to smear your family's name in serving Jesus so that your testimony becomes null and void. Fight for your church. Fight for your church. Stand for your church. Stand for your church that the gospel is going to be preached here. You know that if the Lord doesn't come soon, that we, I believe, are going to enter into some persecution in Western culture. And the question is, who here today will stand and fight for their church? Who will fight for not only your local church, but the church universal? Who will stand and say, send me, I'll be counted amongst those who will be persecuted. Send me, I'll be the one who will preach the gospel to the lost and undying. And then fight for your relationship in Jesus. Not that you have fallen out of salvation, but fight for your relationship to Jesus, that you're going to do what it takes to draw near to Him and grow in your faith. I don't know if we realize this. And what I mean by that, if you're here today, this is going to sound like a shocker to you. You're here today, okay? Track with me. This worship service is not about you. It ain't about your preferences. And listen, I, I imagine some of you are wondering where this pulpit is at. And I've already had it locked and loaded. I was going to ask me where this pulpit is at. And I'm going to say, why are you preaching next week? And to be honest, we just haven't gotten around to putting it back. There's no motive behind it. So. In every service, the centrality is Jesus. It's His Word preached. It's not me. It's not about the preacher. It's not about your teachers. It's about lifting up Jesus. And so we fight for our relationship with Jesus, and sometimes it is a struggle. Now today I want to continue this thought from last week. As we've been, uh, we've been uh, walking through what it means to serve Jesus in difficult times, as we spoke about this last week, and as well as, as the good times uh, ministry is rewarding. Serving Jesus is rewarding. It, it, it brings fulfillment. It brings joy. As much as there is hardship, 
Serving Jesus and being on the battlefield is a joyful thing. It is a joyful thing when our heart and mind is in tune with Him. Is when our motives are right, then serving Jesus is a beautiful thing. But I got to tell you, there is another battle that has taken place. And this battle had took place 2,000 plus years ago. This battle was on a hill called Mount Calvary. It was on Golgotha, the place of the skull. That even sounds like a battleground, does it? Hey, if I was going to be in a world war and I had to lay my life down on the battlefield, hey, I'd want to lay it down on a place called the place of the skull. This is a place where our Savior bled and died on the cross. A battle that had taken place for the sufficient path of salvation for all that would call upon the name of the Lord. And this battle was once, it was for all, and it overcome and conquered the finality of sin, the sting of death. Jesus won that battle. Let me say it again. Jesus won that battle. Amen? So with that being said, and that... Kind of lengthy introduction. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. In the sermon entitled, The Wayward and the Righteous. I'll ask you if you'll look down with me to verse 18. That's where we will begin and finish, up and finish in verse 23. Keep this battle in mind, the place of the skull. Verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his voice, the voice of his father, the voice of his mother... And though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out, the elders of this city, the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and he is a drunkard. Then all the men of this city shall stone him to death with stones. So shall from your midst, and all shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is, a cur is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land, for the Lord your God is given you for an inheritance. Let's... Pray together. Lord, we ask you that you will uh, be with us as we travel through these verses. Uh, Lord, I pray that the things that I have discovered in the time of sermon preparation and that you have spoken to me about, Lord, I will be able to convey in such a way that not only do we unpack the verses with its information, but that we also apply what we hear here today to our heart and mind for transformation. And we love you now in Jesus' name. We pray it. Amen. You may be seated. All right, that's another reason I need the pulpit. <laughs> All right, just a quick summary of the first few verses here. If, uh, if a man was to be found slain in a field, and the cause of his death was unknown, then that murderer shall be compensated by the sacrifice of a heifer in an uncultivated valley. We find this from verses 1 through 4. And then the rites of that ceremony that is used on this occasion is found 
from verses 5 through 9. I want you to keep in mind, as I'm traveling through the very beginning of this, these are ordinances and commands that are meant to bring the community together. They haven't even stepped into the promised land yet. But just so if the occasion would arise, here's what you shall do. Okay, and all of this was to build this community together as they love God and as they love one another. The ordinance uh, concerning marriage with the captive is found from verse 10 through uh, verse 14. What you do if there's a captive slave and those parameters have laid out. The law that is relative to the children and the beloved wife. If the son of the hated wife would be the firstborn, uh, he shall not be disinherited by the son of the beloved wife. But he shall have a double portion of all of his father's goods. And uh, this is a moment of grace within the text. We are to show grace. We are to show mercy. In fact, I believe this is a reflection of the grace and goodness of God. And that is all the way to the end of verse 18. And uh, in this chapter, you will find uh, there are elements of atonement. There are themes of freedom. There are themes of justice. There are themes of of rights, what rights does a person have? There absolutely is, with atonement, there is themes of appeasement. Who appeases the crime? Who ultimately appeases the uh, guilt of, of sin? If there was a rebellious son who remains rebellious perpetually, progressively, and by the way, today, um, sometimes people use this word progressive, Progressive doesn't always mean improvement, okay? Progressive doesn't always mean improvement. Sometimes it's even backwards. And so the son has been progressively in sin and wickedness and have been disobedient to the Lord, thereby being, or disobedient to the parents, thereby being disobedient to God, then that son is destined to, to die. How does that translate to you? How does that translate to me as the wayward or the righteous? So let's find this out. Let's begin with the way of the wayward. We're going to look at two positions this morning. The way of the wayward and that of the righteous. We can also say this is the way of the wicked. Beginning at verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of the father, the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him... Uh, will not listen to them. So hold your place there, and let's, uh, let's think about that for a moment together. I want you to remember that the objective of the Lord is to see His people move to the promised land, and the Lord will bring about this covenant in spite of His own people. In spite of His own people. To see them live out their faith as they love God with their whole being and love one another. Now, what seems drastic to us here? Maybe it is that this person is rebellious, and as we continue to read, we'll see certainly this drastic element will come out. What seems drastic to us may be drastic, but it is a way of deterring sin and rebellion. Sin and rebellion. So here's the law, and as severe as it might be to us, it acted as a powerful deterrent. So if a person in those times uh, stole something, well, they would cut their hands off. I wouldn't want to go stealing. Someone's going to cut my hands off if I got caught. So this eye for an eye, the mentality and element of the law. 
Can, uh, can you imagine if these laws were in effect today? Somebody said, hey, we need to bring these laws back today. Uh, in fact, remains, I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy. Praise the Lord for his mercy. Somebody said, Let, we need to, if somebody steals, we need, to, we need to, uh, to cut off his hand. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, well, there goes your tongue. Bye. I'm thankful for God's grace. Could you imagine if these laws were in effect, if, if, the, if the Lord wasn't full of grace and full of mercy by sending His Son, and these laws were still in effect? Imagine how many, how many deaths of, of disobedient and, and reckless people would be all over the globe. In fact, I can guarantee you this. If that was the case, this church wouldn't be here. This church wouldn't be here. Imagine... All the deaths and all the disobedient over the globe. So I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy by sending His Son. The image of the rebellious Son, by the way, is a staple that is all through God's Word. There are pictures in God's Word. I want you to track with me. And we're going to identify two different trajectories here. All through God's Word, there is the path of the rebellion and the running. And there is a path of the rebellion, or the rebelling, and the repentant. All through God's Word, we find these elements with different people that we read about in the Bible. Some that have been uh, rebellious against God, have sinned against God, have run away from the Lord. And those who have uh, re rebelled against the Lord have repented. So let's, let's think about that for a minute. We see these pictures all through God's Word. Rebelling and repenting and rebelling and running. Think with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is what we would call the fall. Adam and Eve in the garden. The Bible says this in chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, they hid themselves in the presence of God amongst trees and amongst the garden. Is this rebelling and running? Or is this rebelling and repenting? Well, they hid themselves from the face of God, so they were running. If we fast forward into the Psalms, we find ourselves this image of King David in Psalm chapter 51. This is King David lamenting before the Lord as he is caught out on his sin by the prophet Nathan. This is the words of King David. He says, For I... He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and purge me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And by the way, uh, his pillow was drenched with the tears from lament from his sin. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and have done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, is that rebelling and running of rebelling and repentance. This is saturated with repentance, and that is why it is said of King David that he was a man whose heart was contrite before the Lord God. In all his mistakes and in all of his sins, the Bible says that the character of nature of, of David's heart is that he had a contrite heart that knew what it meant to repent before the God, before the Lord God. So so here's what happens to this uh, rebellious, blockheaded person. Can we call him that? Rebellious, 
blockhead, stubborn, stiff-necked person, the Bible says. Uh, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, at the city gate where he lives. And, and they shall say to the elders, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. Uh, he is a glutton and drunkard. We can't do nothing else with him. Can't do nothing with him. So, just so that we are clear, that this is, this is not your precious five-year-old. This is not your precious five to twelve-year-old child. And by the way, this child, no doubt, has reached the stages of adulthood, or his teenage years, and this word that is used for son can imply any age, but I think in our occasion that the drunkard part might give it away. And before we start wondering how this law could be so harsh, I can almost hear Moses. Listen, Israel. Listen, Israel. You have been saturated with the word of the Lord. We've been traveling 40 years. You have heard the word of God through the oral transmission of his word and his commands as we have been going for these 40 years. How many times has God tapped Israel on the shoulder and said, remember Egypt? So Moses is like, gather in. He's got them gathered already. He says, if you raise your children to respect others and respect the Lord, he or she might not be in this state and you could forego this whole ugly mess. If you raise your children to love others and love God, if you discipline your children correctly, now, I know it, it, it does say that we have tried to discipline him, but no doubt there were some who may, maybe not, did not even adhere to the commandments that the Lord has left. If you raise your child to respect others, they might not be in this place. If you raise them to love God, then we could forego this whole ugly mess. Now, does that speak to us today? I mean, we are not taking our children out to be stoned, praise the Lord. But I confess to you, there is something far worse. Sin and wickedness carries so much more punishment than a few, than a few stones up against the head. Because sin separates from the love and goodness of God Almighty. And what do we get in return for that love and goodness? Yeah, we get the presence of God all right, but it's the presence of His eternal judgment and wrath. That's what we get in the place of that. So yeah, a few stones here. There is nothing of the weight of sin that we see that separates us from the love and goodness of God. And all the men of the city, verse 21, shall stone him with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. Now, historically, skeptics and atheists alike have, have tried to use this as some type of proof text, uh, you know, to show that God is an a angry God, a hateful God, or whatever it might be, a, a, a murdering God that is not just. And they have difficulty with these passages, and the fact remains, we all should have difficulties with this passage if we read it as such. You remember, as I, as I read this at the beginning of our sermon, do you remember the way that I read that? So let me do it again. 
Okay? If we read the passage with this in mind, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a, a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the, of the city shall stone him to death with stones. We stop. We pause. We wonder. We put our children in that place. What a horrendous thing to think of. Stoning our own son or daughter because we have fallen, fallen into gluttony or drunkenness and wickedness. They, their sin brought them to this place. Our natural propensity is to stop at that and to think a minute. Whoa, hold on a minute. As if we are in shock and we fail to finish the rest of the verse with the same enthusiasm as we did when we previously read those selections before it. So here it is. Let's read it as it should be read. They shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton. He is a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. And it's not like sin has crept up on this family. It's not like all of a sudden the, the, the son didn't know the consequences. I didn't know any, any better for breaking the commandments of, of God. The oral tradition and the law continually kept it in front of them. It wouldn't have caught them by surprise. They would have known that they were out of the will of God and breaking the commandments of God. So now the Lord commanded the people this law in order to what? To cleanse and purge the evil or sin from their, from their midst. And if we are honest with ourselves, if you are honest with yourself, this is a, this is a character sketch of you. This is a character sketch of me. Prior to Jesus, we are that sinner deserving stoning and separation from the goodness and the love of God. We are that son, that daughter that deserved to be taken out and stoned. But Jesus, but Jesus, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 how we were the sons of disobedience. Listen to these words. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead. No life at all. No spiritual life. There was nothing in which you once walked. You were once walking in that sin, following the course of the world. You were following the prince and the power of the air of the Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were once one sons and daughters of disobedience. God doesn't give us a word without giving us a remedy either. God doesn't give us a warning without giving us remedy. The remedy for the people going into the promised land was that there was to be a purging from the evil. In this case, it was a stoning. But with God, with Yahweh, there is this cosmic remedy. The remedy is the Lord Jesus. The remedy is Christ. The remedy is the blood shed on Calvary. The remedy is that Jesus rose again. The law that was given to the people was like a blueprint. It just showed you that you're wrong. It just showed you that you couldn't keep any of the commandments. And it was a blueprint. You go to a doctor, 
they order an x-ray on your leg, you come back in to look at that x-ray, they're not going to lay it on your leg or your arm and say, yeah, I'm fixing it. They're not going to wrap it on your leg. You should be fine now. And the remedy is this, that God treated sin by the prescribed blood of Christ on the cross, by the blood of Jesus. That is the remedy. That is the remedy. And then we find in the end of Deuteronomy 19 or 21, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Cursed is the one who hangs from the tree. Now, students of the Bible ought to be familiar with these words. They were written by the Apostle Paul to the churches, plural, at Galatia, concerning the righteous living by faith. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where is it written? Well, it's written in the end of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and you, and you hang him on the tree, then you are to remove him before nightfall. Okay, he's before the darkness. You need to take him down. Okay, we'll read that in a moment. So, students of God's Word, you already made a connection with Jesus. This is already, Deuteronomy 22 and 23 is a Christ-centered message even of itself. He took the sins of the world upon himself, although not being sinful. He that knew no sin became sin so that we could become righteousness of God. He bore our sin in the way that was already considered to be cursed. The crime that was punishable by death in the context of Deuteronomy is rebellion. Particularly the rebellion that is found intrinsically in every single person that has ever been born, who has ever took a breath. This sinfulness and rebellion is already there. The son or the daughter that was found guilty was either stoned or hung from a tree. Why would the hanging be so different? They were both shameful. Hanging from a tree in its appalling nature and punishment. The person was exposed to insult, assault, and shame. Think of Jesus on the cross. They hurled insults and assaulted him. They pulled out his beard. They, they beat him. They shamed him. The pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross with a with a little piece of cloth upon him was uh, for the protection of our own eyes, mind you. Jesus hung naked on that cross in shame. The person would be hung to be displayed for all to see and no grace whatsoever would be found in the hands of the people. No grace. It was full of agony, it was full of humiliation, and the punishment was severe. Hanging a cursed person is seen to curse the land if left overnight. So look at verse 23, the last verse. 
His body shall not remain on, all night on the tree, but you shall bury him and shall uh, in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for his inheritance. Numbers 34 and verse 35, it states this as it defiles or curses the land. We see in the gospel account that there is a hurry to take Jesus from the cross before the beginning of the Sabbath. And we find this on the account of Joseph of Arimathea as he come to claim the body of Jesus. He wanted the body of Christ to, to give him a proper burial. We find that in Mark 15, verse 42. The evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before uh, uh, the Passover. Not that the Lord was a curse to the land. Okay? That's more of a superstition that carries a superstition as it is grounded in the, uh, what Jesus' purpose was. It's not that Christ was a curse to the land as he himself bore the sins. But that he might be planted into the earth to be raised in victory from the grave. So not only are we like the son or the daughter brought out to be stoned, we also deserve to hang from a tree. But Jesus took our place. This is the core of the substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place. Now, Christ removed the curse of sin. So think about it in closing. Where the wages of sin is death, Christ paid that debt. Where all have fallen short of the glory and righteousness of God, Christ becomes our righteousness. It's not a fair exchange. It's not an exchange I can explain. Some call it the great exchange. Some call it a double imputation. Whatever you call it. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, stated this of this glorious transaction. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. We are redeemed from the curse. The law is silenced. It can demand no more. It can't demand us be stoned anymore. Why? The quiver of wrath is exhausted. The blessing of God, hitherto it was arrested by the curse, is now made most freely to flow. A giant rock has been lifted from the riverbed of God's mercy. And the living stream comes rippling, roil, rolling, swelling, on the crystal tide, sweeping before it all human sin and sorrow and making the thirsty who stoop down drink it. Are you thirsty? Drink in the mercy of Jesus. Drink in the grace of Jesus who died for you, who hung on Calvary's tree on the battleground called the place of the skull. Where we were worthy of stoning and hanging and death due to progressive rebellion and sinfulness, Christ died for us. And by the way, by me saying that, students of God's word, you ought to be able to know exactly where I'm getting ready to go. 
Do you? Let me say it again. Think about it. Think about it. Where we were worthy of stoning and hanging due to rebellion and sin, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, those worthy of stoning and hanging, the wicked, the rebellious. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows, He demonstrated, He manifested His love for us in that while we were still sinners. Say it with me. Christ died for us. So let me end on this, with these questions. Are you thirsty? Drink from the stream of the Lord's mercy and grace. Be saved. If you do not know Christ today, He died for your sins. Call out to Him for repentance. Call out to Him to be your Savior. If you call out and you repent, He will save you. He will save you. If you trust in Him, if you confess your sins, and if you believe that Jesus not only died on the cross, but rose again on the third day, if you believe that and you confess it, the Bible says you will be saved. So be saved today. Church, church, be edified. So be it. Amen. Let's pray.